If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson! It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, coming up a little later on in the show, you know, this was fascinating because, uh, you know, you're always trying to get uh, the big names, the big political leaders and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff on the show. And um, and we were uh, Will, who's brilliant at, you know, going out there and trying to trying to dig them up and get them to commit and stuff. So we get uh, Pierre Polyev on and, you know, maybe, maybe lots of people just don't get interviews with Pierre Polyev. I get them. No problem. It's the prime minister. I'm happy. I'm having a problem with. So anyway, uh, the great thing, uh, you know, as soon as Will gets Pierre Polyev on, it's like, well, I'm going to leverage that with everybody else. Pierre Polyev's been on. What do you got to say about that? You know, he didn't speak very highly of you. Uh, That's all made up, of course. And uh, well, maybe not. Anyway, so, uh, you know, yeah. So NDP Jugmeet Singh going to be joining us at 520 today. 520 today, Jugmeet Singh is going to be joining us. So if you've got a question, a comment, anything you want to say, feel free. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And we've still got a couple of days to uh, get the prime minister on. Oh, no, I'm just I'm being I'm just being slipped some. What is this, a fax? Uh, uh, from the Prime Minister, and uh, no, the team has uh, responded, saying, unfortunately, we will not be able to accommodate your request before the end of the year. They didn't really say what year. <laughs> before before the end of the year. But then again, you know, that's like, well, never mind. Uh, we will certainly reach out if there is an opportunity to get him on the show in 2024. Oh, there you go. So uh, anyway, we'll see if that happens, but uh, you never know. But the great thing is you get one on. There's always another one willing to come on. And uh, actually, both of these gentlemen have been uh, have been pretty uh, forthright and, and to the point in, in coming on when uh, when they certainly can. And we appreciate that. And they're all sort of doing their year-end kind of sayonaras now, right? They're all off on break, and they're giving you the, uh, you know, hope you have a great uh, holiday and la, 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 and, and, and trying to get you set up for the new year. All right, enough of that. So uh, 520, Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, is going to join us. you got a question, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Also, uh, there's some noise coming out of the U.S. <laughs> oh, no, it's Donald Trump. What a surprise. Uh, Brian J. Cram is going to be joining us, uh, White House correspondent, and he's uh, going to talk about what's going on in Colorado. I guess they, you know, you can vote to, uh, if somebody has uh, a felony, <laughs> uh, then, you know, obviously disqualify, can disqualify them for being president. However, this apparently has not worked in other states. We're going to get an update from Brian and talk about all of this and, and what it means as the world down there spins a little faster than ours. All right, we've talked with Brian J. Karam uh, about this uh, several times and whether Donald Trump will even make it to the White House considering the legal uh, battles between uh, here and there. And it looks like this is one of those bumps in the state of Colorado who have voted to take him off the ballot. Uh, To explain more, Brian J. J. Karam, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN, and here now. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Doing well. How about yourself, brother? So far, so good. Heading into the holidays. So uh, what is happening here? And and we've talked about this, uh, you know, in the past and such. Does this have much legs? Uh, Is this the sort of thing we're about to see? Or as in some states, is it just going to get tossed? Well, we'll see. I mean, there's a good argument to say that the Supreme Court can't even take up this case and that Colorado was right in doing what they were doing. There are 15 or 16 other states that are considering pulling the same trigger. Uh, There are people who, like Maggie Hagerman at uh, the New York Times and others who believe that this will energize Trump, but I know Donald Trump, and uh, this doesn't energize him. It scares him to death, and there's not a safe catch a bottle on the planet. He's going to go nuts. He's going to grift off of it, but uh, as I've said, I've never been convinced that Donald Trump... um, will be on the ballot next November. So I, mm-hmm. I think this is just another nail in his political coffin. What about other states that have tried this, but it, it, it gets chucked? And like you said, what happens if it does go all the way to a Republican Supreme Court? Well, the Republican, uh, I'm sorry, that um, this was in the Colorado State Supreme Court. Right, and so exactly. now he's appealing it to the U.S. Supreme Court. This yes. is not a battle that Donald Trump would likely win in the U S Supreme court because it's a, a state's rights issue. And many right. of, as you said, there are, uh, you know, six Republicans, I believe on the U S Supreme court out of nine, and they're a big state's rights party. So um, they would be going against a U S Supreme court precedent and they'd be going for Donald Trump. And I, you know, they may have been three of them may have been appointed by Donald Trump, but, Nobody likes Donald Trump. No one in government actually likes the guy. The only ones that are beholden to him are the money. And the U.S. Supreme Court is beyond that. They don't have to stand for re-election. They can do pretty much what they want. And so I'd be I'm I'm gonna be the one that's gonna be surprised if the U.S. Supreme Court does anything with this case. I think Colorado uh ruling, the Colorado ruling is just like I said, another coffin in his another nail in his political coffin. So does this set off the first domino? Are other states going to jump behind this? Uh, does momentum well, there are pick up here? States considering it. So, I mean, it's, we'll see if and when and what they decide, but it could be the first of, of 15 states. And, you know, at some point in time, if you're not on the ballot in those states, I, you're not going to win the, you know, you're not going to get the electoral votes in that state. So, it doesn't bode well for Donald Trump. None of this bodes well for Donald Trump. This is more stress in his life. I, I've always said he could become a victim of the actuarial tables before next November too. And mm-hmm. I don't think that this means that Donald Trump, uh, I think it means that Donald Trump won't be the the uh, nominee from the Republican Party next year. Is this what you've been talking about for months now, Brian, that there's so many yeah. of these obstacles that this will prevent him from even getting there? Yeah, absolutely. Look, he's facing 91 felony charges in, in four different jurisdictions. He's got uh, the civil penalties to his business in New York. He's facing Georgia. You know, he, he's got a look. This guy is not Neo in the Matrix. He can't dodge all these bullets. He's going down. It's, it's just how long does it take to get there? So how many, how many, how many states, what needs to, you said 15 or if there's 15 that are thinking about this, uh, how many states need to do this? Or if they did this, would it, would have an effect on the, on the, well, it depends on how the electoral vote counts out. It could be, you know, how that count goes. It could be one, two or three. I mean, if a large state, uh, with a lot of electoral votes boots him, 
he's boned. Uh, if uh, a lot of small states do it, he's boned. If none of them do it, he still may be boned because Donald Trump doesn't handle stress very well. And at some point in time, he's going to, you know, the ketchup bottles are going against the wall and he's going to go nuts and he'll continue to go nuts. The only thing positive out of this for Donald Trump is that he gets to grift his supporters for more money. And I ask you, if you're a Donald Trump supporter and you're on limited means and it's Christmas time, why would you give money to Donald Trump versus your own loved ones for Christmas? Think of that. Where, and that was sort of my next question, Brian, where does this leave his base? Because many have said this, he just turns this into fundraising and his whole life has been a perpetual uh, court case. Uh, But as you pointed out, it may be coming to the end of the road here. But where does this leave his base? At what point do they react? Uh, Are you concerned there might be another rise up? Uh, Well, we are a very violent nation, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) So, um with multiple shootings every week, with mass shootings, I don't know that he'll add any more to the violence than we already have in this country, sad to say. And I don't think that uh, his, you know, the January 6th um, prosecutions of many of these, um, many of the people who were involved in the insurrection has dulled their uh, desire to go out and, and take up arms for Donnie because, you know, Donnie hadn't gone to prison and and several of them have. So I I don't see that the violence will increase more than is natural in the United States, but that doesn't mean it's not uh, safe here. It means that it, it's the un, the level of unsafety is about the same as it's always been. So where does this story regarding Colorado go now? Well, it before the Supreme Court to decide, uh, they may kick it down to the appellate courts. They may not look at it at all. Uh, meanwhile, Donnie, as of this day, is not on. Will not be on the ballot in Colorado next year, and that's not a good thing for him. Uh, so we'll have to see. You know, I, it it may go nowhere, and and he may just stay off the ballot. Uh, he's look. Trump is an enemy of our constitution. Uh, he's an enemy of the people, and each day, every one of these decisions show increasingly show that he's a problem. Uh, nationally and internationally. And, you know, the long uh, arm of the law may be slow and swinging, but it's pretty heavy, and he's going to find that out this year. This Brian coming. J. Karam. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN. Brian, thank you so much for all you've done over the course of the year and joining us. Uh, very, very much appreciated, and have a great holiday. You have a great holiday, my brother, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Sounds good. You take care. There's been lots said and certainly lots of circuses and theatrics in regard to uh, groceries. We, we certainly know, like, we need to tell you um, inflation and the cost of putting food on the table for your family and where that has gone in a post-pandemic world. Uh, we saw the parade of uh, grocery CEOs, and somehow that was supposed to bring help before uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas. Who knows now? Uh, things have leveled out, but... Uh, that usually is a trend as uh, prices stabilize this time of the year. A lot of chatter around the code of conduct, uh, code of conduct, code of conduct. And Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, professor of food distribution and policy, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, has commented on this. But like anything, the devil is in the details. Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois now. Sylvain, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am well, Scott. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Thanks, Sylvan. You said that this would be a focal point. Uh, now, uh, I believe it's uh, Galen Weston being called out because of a, a point that he made that that was inaccurate. What are your thoughts on that? Give us give us your your opinion. So when he showed up uh, a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa, he claimed that uh, the code of conduct would cost Canadians money, uh, about a billion dollars. I think that's what he said. Uh, he used uh, the Australian model. Now, Australia has a code of conduct. It has had a code of conduct since, I believe, 2014 or 2013. And uh, basically, he said that uh, suppliers would basically be protected and would set whatever price uh, the market would would be able to bear, essentially, and grocers would have to comply with with these prices. That's not true at all for two reasons. One, uh, suppliers wouldn't get their way. It is more about arbitrating disputes between grocers and suppliers. And two, the code of conduct has nothing to do with pricing. It has everything to do with contractual conditions and terms like carryovers, listing fees, penalties, uh, shelf space, and things like that. It has nothing to do with pricing at all. So to suggest that the code of conduct will cost Canadians money, I, I just don't know uh, where he got uh, the information or how he built his case because right now I would say that Gail Weston's testimony was a bit misleading. The fallout from that, Sylvan. The fallout from that is basically, well, right now you're seeing a company, Loblaw, defending uh, a, a voluntary code of conduct because they really are uh, the, the leading company. They make and break companies along with Walmart. They do not want things to change. The code of conduct would level the playing field between grocers and suppliers and, of course, it would also help independent grocers in Hamilton and elsewhere in Canada. Right now, independent grocers just don't have the power because right now, Loblaws and Walmart are taking so much space. Uh, if you look at Australia, the UK, and Ireland, all three countries have a code of conduct in the last decade or so. Prices have actually, food prices have actually been more stable than in Canada. And so that's why I think it's important to recognize how uh, how valuable a code of conduct would be. And on top of that, it would increase competition. It would keep suppliers in Canada. It would provide more options to consumers, more competition, and more stable prices as well. Uh, we've talked about this before. What are your concerns about a code of conduct, especially especially in the sense that it's voluntary? And you know, obviously, we have this reaction here from from Loblaw. But, uh, but what needs to be in this for it to actually be effective? So I got two concerns. One, a lot of people listening to us are probably thinking, "Well, it's the government fixing prices." That's not that's not it at all. Uh, the code of conduct is not the government. It will be a non-for-profit coordinating the industry, dealing with issues that aren't being dealt with right now. There's there's lots of tension right now in the, the food industry. And, and what we're seeing right now are suppliers just leaving. Nestle left this summer with its frozen product for a reason. Canada yeah. is not an attractive place to do business as a supplier. Kleenex also left. Why? Because of what we're talking about right now. 
My other concern is whether or not the code will be mandatory uh, or not. Now, Minister McCauley, the Minister of Agriculture and the Minister of Innovation, uh, François-Philippe Champagne, both have said that the code of conduct will happen. And I'm very pleased to hear that. But they haven't committed to make the code of conduct mandatory. If it is not mandatory, there's no way Loblaw would pay fines or Walmart would pay fines and comply to a code. It needs to be mandatory in order to work. You talked of other models. You used the example of Australia. Would that work here? It would, because if you look at the if you look at the infrastructure of the food industry, it's very similar to Australia's and the UK as well. A few, a handful of grocers, lots of suppliers, uh, but you have CPGs, so large multinationals like Nestle, Model E's, Pepsi and Coca-Cola, and you have a lot of SMEs. A lot of them are in Ontario, in your area, and they're having difficulty dealing with Loblaws and Walmart, and they can't speak up. They can't speak up because if they do, they'll lose all the business. Who would police a code of conduct? Well, it would actually be uh, the Bureau itself. The Bureau would be responsible for, for the code of conduct. Now, it depends how the governance will look like, my guess is that it would be linked to the Bureau, uh, the Competition Bureau of Canada, which is under innovation, which is led by Francois-Philippe Champagne. Where does this info leave Loblaw? Obviously, in the game of PR, it's not helping. Uh, I, I don't know what, I mean, Galen Weston knows things. I mean, I, I don't know why he did what he did. Uh, there, there are Two reasons, maybe. One, he's a CEO, a very busy person. Maybe he didn't know uh, about uh, the pricing issue in Australia. Maybe he didn't. Uh, or he's basically uh, trying to scare Canadians. Because uh, the code of conduct is an abstract concept. A lot of people don't understand what it is. There's actually a page. There's actually a website that it will explain to people exactly how the code would work. Uh, you just Google code of grosser code of conduct canada and it will lead you to that page my guess is that right now loblaws is running a campaign to scare canadians as much as possible so they would actually go against uh the code of conduct which is really the wrong thing to do would other grocers uh be more accepting of it well obviously you you use the example of walmart and loblaw how would the others feel <laughs> sobe's on board metro's on board yeah. They're on record saying that these they're very supportive, but Michael Medline from Empire Sobe's and Eric Lafleur, the CEO of Metro, they both said in order for the code to work, it needs to be mandatory, and I agree with them. Mm-hmm. And Walmart, and uh, so Walmart, of course, is on board with Loblaws. They're they're fighting. They're just letting Loblaws to do the PR work against the code. Costco is a different beast. It's a wholesaler mostly, so they don't really, it won't change anything for them because they only carry 4,000 SKUs. It's just a different model altogether. But right now, the fight belongs to Loblaw, and that's why over the last few weeks, we've seen Gail Weston come out with really misleading information, and I hope, I just hope it will stop. And uh, also, I hope that Ottawa will actually provide some leadership and, and force Loblaw to adhere to the code.
Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, a grocer code of conduct. Sylvain, as always, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for all the contribution over the course of the year, and have a great holiday. Happy holidays to you too as well. I guess the the call to get rid of the name Dundas has been has been on for a while, and then it's just some, somehow out of the blue, um, it seemed uh, Toronto changed the name of its uh, Young Dundas Square or Dundas Square, getting rid of the name of Dundas. There's some subway stations that are going to have the same treatment, library and such. And it, I was surprised, number one, that it happened so quickly uh, without much debate and then renamed. That was the second part of this. How does how does it you come up with the other name so quickly without it didn't seem to be much public input? And there's an interesting column in the National Post. Uh, Dr. Rahim Mohammed, whoops, Sankova Square comes with a slave trade connection of its own. Toronto fumbles attempt to cancel uh, abolished Henry Dundas. And to talk more about all of this and moving forward, where do we go? Dr. Rahim Mohammed is with us, political commentator, writer, specializing in comparative politics, natural resources. A political economy uh, with Central, uh, sorry, Center College, Wake Forest University. Raheem, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Always great to be here. I just wanted to clarify at the beginning that I'm a, I have a doctorate in political science, not history. Um, I am far from an ep- expert in the period of early modern history, British history, uh, West African history uh, that mm-hmm. concerns the transatlantic sl- slave trade. So um, I just wanted to uh, start off with that as a d- disclaimer. All right, let's uh, start. First of all, are you surprised at how quickly this happened? And I guess, it, I don't know if it's quick or not. It's certainly the debate part of it seemed to be quick. Uh, and then uh, right after, okay, and here's the new name. Are you surprised that, uh, how quick that all happened? Well, I think this push started in the summer of 2020. Um, when mm-hmm. as you'll remember, um, you know, there was this kind of global backlash in response to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and I believe it was inspired by a movement in Scotland, uh, which is was uh, Henry Dendas's uh, home country or homeland, uh, to um, rename um, a, a, a statue of Dundas over there. Um, so that uh, started a conversation here in Canada um, about three years ago, a little more than three years ago, um, about uh, sort of whether Dundas uh, delayed uh, the end of, of British slavery, the British slave trade, um, you know, whether his name should be uh, commemorated on various landmarks and city-owned assets. So um, it was something that uh, happened gradually and then all at once, I, I can say. So uh, um, uh, what do you think public reaction is to this? Do you think people care? I, I mean, I, I think it's mostly, from what I've seen, I mean, one, uh, people are more or less indifferent, but but the reaction I have seen is kind of bafflement to uh, to not quite um, to uh, dissatisfaction, and I think um, you know this is part of a seven hundred thousand uh, dollar taxpayer funded campaign uh, to rename city assets uh, that currently bear the name of Dundas. Um, and I mean, seven hundred thousand dollars in the grand scheme of the city of Toronto's budget is not a mm-hmm. substantial sum of money. But but we're at a period of time where uh, the city of Toronto is in a major budget short hole. I think there's a hole of about $1.2 billion. Um, as you've mentioned, you know, food bank usage, uh, you know, uh, people living on the line, below the line um, in Toronto, among other Canadian cities, uh, the situation is getting a lot worse. Uh, so uh, this kind of sends the wrong message. And more than anything, uh, there's a sense that this is kind of a wasteful and pointless uh, exercise in virtue signaling. 
What concerns you about this? Because what's next? Is it the street of Dundas, wherever it travels? Uh, what's next? Sure. So Dundas is not the first historical figure uh, to undergo this sort of uh, quote-unquote no. cancellation. Uh, you know, you saw a similar process underway uh, a few years back uh, against Egerton Ryerson, um, given his involvement in the residential school system. Um, so ironically, I read about this in my article, um, and I think this is just so symbolic of uh, this whole process. The Dundas station right now um, in downtown, um, the TTC is planning to rename it uh, Toronto Metropolitan University Station, uh, which is a nod um, named after uh, the uh, university that used to be yeah. known as Ryerson University. Um, so I think if we have this kind of whitewashing, um, we'll eventually forget our history. We'll have no context. And um, I think it's better to uh, sort of have uh, these parts of our history, have these names from our history um, in the public domain. And, you know, we can reflect in equal terms on their positive contributions to Canada and also be forthright about, um, you know, some of the more negative dimensions uh, of their respective histories. Um, but I think if we get to the point where we're starting to erase history, I don't think that's good for national identity. I don't think it's good for our sense of Canadianness. Where do you draw the line? And we've only got a few seconds here. Where do you draw the line? I mean, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport, where, where, how do you decide who is in, who's out? Well, I talk about something uh, as large as, um, as the transatlantic slave, slave trade. Um, so 17th century, sorry, um, 1700s, 1800s, um, it really was central to the entire global economy. And absolutely, yeah. uh, you know, blacks in West Africa were principally the victims of transatlantic slavery. But you also had um, some societies such as the Asante Empire um, in present-day Ghana uh, that benefited, um, you know, that were middlemen that sort of bought and sold um, slaves from um, from white colonists or white um, white traders. Um, so I think it's best to um, sort of leave these historical landmarks as they are. Um, if you want to provide context in terms of a marker or in terms of some sort of, um, you know, some sort of um, text uh, contextualizing the landmarks, I think that's the better way to go uh, than just scrubbing these names from history. Dr. Raheem Mohammed with us, political commentator and writer, Wake Forest University, latest in uh, the National Post. Uh, Raheem, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've been watching and monitoring inflation. Everybody knows affordability, the issues that that is creating around the household, groceries, rent, the whole nine yards. Uh, the inflation rate is holding steady at 3.1%. Uh, is that good or bad? I at least it didn't go up, but many were hoping in thinking that the trend was on its way down. Let's bring in Colin Mang, Assistant Professor of Economics, McMaster University, and here now. Colin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's great to talk to you today, Scott. So, Colin, is this good or bad news or indifferent? Does it matter? What is it? So it is sort of what we were expecting. Back in October, the Bank of Canada did say that over the coming year, they expected inflation to be you know, pretty steady within the three to three and a half range before getting back to the 2% target that we're aiming for by 2025. So this is sort of expected. And if we look at you know, the way that 
the prices of different goods have been shifting. You know, some have been going up, but some have been coming down. So it's not unexpected that we would see inflation on average holding steady. Are prices going down or are they not, or are they just not going up as fast as they were? Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, some prices are still going up, but there are a number of items that have gotten cheaper over the past year. So gasoline, for example, and that's a big thing that families spend money on. Uh, gasoline right now is about seven, almost 8% cheaper than it was last year. Uh, clothing is another thing. Clothing has been holding steady. Uh, last month, clothing was actually about uh, six, 7% cheaper than it was last year, but it's come back up a little bit. Still about the same price as it was last year. Uh, home furnishings are another thing that are down about 1%. Uh, so there are some things that have gone down in price. Of course, the big thing that is still pushing inflation up, as you mentioned before, the cost of housing. This is really the big thing that's hurting families right now. And that's probably going to continue into the into the new year, unfortunately. Uh, in uh, Sitting right now at about 3.1%, they want to get down to 2 or as close to that as they can. It, it, why is it difficult to get beyond 3? Have we been making steady increase? It seems we're kind of stuck here, like losing the last few pounds, per se. Yeah, that is the hardest part, right? So you look back last year, inflation was about 6.8% at this time last year. So we've come a long way, but getting back to that 2% target, now that we're so, so close, that last 1% really is the hardest part because there is still a lot of pressure in, in a lot of industries. You know, Wages are, are going up because workers who faced high inflation for the last two years, they're asking for raises. But of course, then those get passed on to consumers through price increases. So there's still that kind of pressure out there. Uh, the other thing, as I mentioned before, that is still really, really pushing on the inflation rate is housing costs. So we saw that rent is up about another 7%. And the really big one, which is really going to hurt a lot of families this coming year, is the mortgage interest. If you own your home and you're coming up for mortgage renewal, uh, we're typically seeing 30% increases in you know the the mortgage yeah. payments as, as households come up for renewals so and that's going to continue because interest rates are still going to be on the higher end next year so we're still going to see this pressure on housing and that's going to keep inflation a bit higher and as well Colin uh with the housing shortage that's probably going to drag on for a few years Oh, certainly. I mean, we are seeing some movement from you know the federal government and from the provincial government. They've removed the uh, GST and PST from uh, the construction of new rental buildings to try to incentivize developers to build more rental housing. They're trying to make it easier. We've seen um, uh, you know the federal government handing out some money all across the country for various different projects. But it takes time for those to get built. You know, once you have the plans, uh, they've got this new idea to go back to the old uh, post-war blueprints. Right. Uh, the C the CMHC had these blueprints from the 1950s. Uh, I mean, you can see them all across the country if you, you drive around, especially in Ontario. You see these cookie cutter homes, and you know they want to go back to this this style because these blueprints were pre-approved like 70 years ago. Uh, mm. We could just put up the houses, but again, those don't just happen overnight. Uh, it's going to take time for those to get built. So it is you're you're absolutely right. Probably still going to be another couple of years before that housing shortage really starts to ease up. Uh, Bank of Canada still very hesitant to say what rates are going to do, uh, going to do, holding them steady right now. Certainly not an increase, but they've been talking about decreases in the United States, and they could see three of them 
this year. Bank of Canada not being so optimistic uh, about that. What are your thoughts uh, in the comparison between Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, uh, the in the United States, they are looking at potentially three rate cuts. In Canada, we might see one or two rate cuts next year. I don't think we're going to get to three. Again, one of the big differences between Canada and the United States is this housing issue. Their rents went up a little bit. Uh, their rent is only up about 6%, whereas ours is mm. up about 7 But they also don't have the same kind of mortgage interest pressures. Because in the United States, when people buy a house, they borrow for much, much longer terms. So yeah. they don't have these regular renewals that we have in Canada. So, uh, you know, inflation in the United States has been coming down. Uh, their inflation rate's actually about the same as ours right now, but they're not going to have those same kind of pressures next year. So the Federal Reserve is now starting to look at the possibility of, of rate cuts, whereas in Canada, uh, particularly this housing issue, uh, is going to continue to push on inflation, and that's going to make it harder for the Bank of Canada. So I think we're going to see um, our interest rates stay higher for a little bit longer than you see in the United States. Is two percent unrealistic, Colin? We've only got a few minutes, a few seconds left. Is 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 that? Do we need to hit there? Do we have two point five, two point seven? Is two percent? Is that is that achievable in twenty twenty four? In 2024, probably not. I think the Bank of Canada is right that it's going to take till 2025 to get there. I think they have to get there for credibility purposes because they've been talking about this since the 1990s that they want to have 2%. Mm. And if they don't get back there, people just won't believe them in future when they say they want to have 2%. So I think they're going to keep rates high enough, long enough to get back there eventually. But I do think they are correct. It's going to be 2025 when we see that. Colin Mang with us, Assistant Professor Economics, McMaster University, no, uh, inflation rate holding steady at 3.1%. Colin, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. When we hear of the new uh, Democrats and liberals uh, plan for whether it's uh, pharmacare or dental care, you know, the argument often is, well, doesn't everybody deserve this? And and of course, and I'm not sure you're going to find a lot of Canadians that disagree with that. Um, the, the issue is, is this the best way to do that? And uh, as the liberals and new Democrats negotiate what the future national drug plan is, should look like many people are questioning well what about the healthcare system in general uh and what we went through during a global pandemic exposing all sorts of faults are there not other things we should be doing first or uh that are certainly uh, more kitchen table issues uh for the canadian public let's bring in christian bork executive vice president senior partner with leger polling and their latest is that only 18 percent of those surveyed said the government should prior prioritize creating a new universal single uh, payer drug plan mental health long-term care backlog on surgeries all getting the nod ahead of this christian bork with us now christian thank you for the time hope you're well hey i'm doing great how about yourself so far, so good. Are you surprised at this, Christian, considering that this is, seems we all, the government talks about? And again, many have said out of touch, just not hitting uh, with the common issues that the average person is looking at. But are you surprised to hear the, to see this response when it's something that is so front and center, it appears? Yeah, somewhat surprised. I, I think it's it's uh, politicians talking to politicians about it more than anything else, because mm. the majority of Canadians say, you know what, I'm not really familiar with that 
pharmacare thing at all. Uh, uh, so a majority of Canadians don't really know what it is. And then we, when we ask about what should be the priorities of the federal government when it comes to healthcare, uh, it comes in sixth place overall, way after senior care, uh, way after uh, reducing surgical wait times, as you mentioned, uh, increasing mental health services. All of that is way more important to Canadians right now than pharmacare, because 53% say, when we ask the question, I'm not familiar with pharmacare at all. Um, it, it's funny because when I talk to, uh, for example, dental care and, and we talk to the local dental associations in the province or even, uh, federally, uh, they're all for getting more people, uh, to, to get medical, uh, help and such. It's just, is it the right way to go about doing it? Do you, mm-hmm. and from what you're suggesting, Canadians really don't know how this is going to work. And after perhaps going through a pandemic with a failing healthcare system, are, are Canadians questioning this? In a way, they are. When we actually said, you know, this pharmacare program can take different shapes and forms uh, from a universal, single payer, everybody gets the same coverage, and it basically replaces your private health insurance that you may have through your employer. Um, really, Canadians seem to be favoring sort of a, I would say, sort of a Swiss cheese hybrid option, which mm-hmm. is all of those who actually have private health coverage stay the way they are. But for lower income Canadians, Canadians over 65, then we can think of supplementing uh, through a government program or a form of pharmacare. Uh, but this seems to be much more important to Canadians than having a single payer universal model, uh, which, which is pretty much the NDP's uh, uh, proposal. Conversely, though, only 17% of Canadians say, I don't want any of these drug plans at all. So there seems to be, I mean, I, I would say some some room for the federal government to implement something. Uh, but so far, it's not the universal one-size-fits-all program that seems to be favored by Canadians. Do you think Canadians are concerned, considering the condition of the Canadian healthcare system, that taking something like this on, are we duplicating? Are we are we following down the same path? If it's if it's not, if it needs adjustments for healthcare, if it's not working for healthcare, why is this going to work for for pharmacare or even dental care? Well, the fact is, is that two out of three Canadians have private health uh, uh, insurance yeah. through their employer or through their spouse's employer. Uh, so for for two out of three Canadians, there, there sort of uh, seems to be this sort of why fix it uh, uh, yeah. when it comes to pharmacare um, because you, they already have some form of coverage. That's probably why they prioritize much more important issues to them, uh, such as you know cutting down uh, wait times for surgeries senior care and all of the others that we've talked about. So so right now, for a majority of Canadians, they probably don't see the priority uh, because they're not part of that minority uh, that do not fit into any of the categories, existing categories uh, uh, right now where they could get some form um, of, of uh, uh, drug insurance. Uh, do you think Canadians, uh, you know, are, are th- well, you were alluding to this, that, you know, they've already got a plan. Do they need a plan for this? Uh, it, it appears that, that this is political, that, you know, you're looking, uh, we've got parties looking to uh, to take over, which was a provincial jurisdic- uh, jurisdiction, again, with some sort of universal plan that really... It doesn't serve the purpose. And again, I've had associations tell me if they just give us the money, we could better uh, make better use of it than than another program, per se. Mm-hmm. Is that well, what Canadians are questioning, do you think? 
Oh, potentially. Actually, when we asked, should should the federal government increase uh, health transfers to the provinces, you give the provinces the money, they'll they'll handle yeah. it to the best of their capability and invest in more nurses if they wanted to, whatever. Um, and actually, that's more of a priority than pharmacare to Canadians. Um, and already PEI and Quebec have some form of pharmacare program already in place. Uh, so that that leaves the other provinces uh, uh, where this could be implemented by provincial governments as well. So far, when we when we actually look at at uh, at this issue, I'm starting to think maybe it's more the optics when it comes to 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 the politics of it that could be more of an issue to the federal government than the program itself. I.e., is that if they put this in place, if it's not the NDP, does that jeopardize the deal between the NDP and the Liberals? If yeah. they go full steam ahead with the NDP proposal, then that gives sort of a. a um, a lot of ground for the the conservative party uh, leader uh, to actually sort of say again one more case of of endless spending by uh, uh, by the Trudeau Liberals. So I think the optics politically are not that good, even though Canadians for now seem to be open to it, but not really care much about it. Uh, we've got NDP leader Jagmeet Singh coming up uh, the show after the 5.30 news. We've talked to him about this before and, you know, at, at what point do, is it good for the party to fish or cut bait, to leave the Liberals and continue on? And he would say or has said to us in the past, well, for us, it's not about power. It's about bringing home these programs. It's about so they can say, you know, we brought in dental care, we brought in uh, pharma care, we brought in what have you. But again, um, what I'm questioning is, are we making the same mistakes that we've been making with healthcare? Have we fixed the template before we're adding others to it? Is there a time where do you think this will wear off for the NDP, that they'll they'll have to go one way or the other? Because if you look in the mm-hmm. polls, uh, the NDP leader isn't doing much better than than the prime minister is. No. And and when we actually look at, at who would you vote for and how you feel about, uh, about this pharmacare program, of those who said they would vote for the NDP, um, only 28% of them said, I want the full-blown, universal, one-size-fits-all drug coverage uh, uh, option, which is proposed by uh, by their leader. So even within NDP sort of rank-and-file and supporters, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. Christian Bork with us, Executive Vice President, Senior Partner with Leger. Leger uh, Leger's latest poll, uh, people, uh, Canadians aren't as uh, excited about a universal pharmacare program, perhaps, as they are, are other health issues. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You might remember our uh, uh, prime minister who it just seems can't do anything right of late. It's it's divisive. It's this way. It's that way. It's 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 um, trying to bring things together that just seem to be um, inflamed after uh, he has uh, dealt with it. And we remember way back when uh, in, in the summer that um, uh, he stood up in the House of Commons and made allegations against India in regard to their interference and involvement in the assassination attempt of a Sikh, or the assassination, I should say, of a Sikh separatist on Canadian soil. Uh, at that point, the al- allies kind of whoop, took off and left him uh, on his own, not 
sure he had handled all of this the right way. And then it was just a few weeks ago where U.S. President Biden stood up and basically said the same thing. Uh, however, went about it a different way. Uh, in the year-end wrap-ups that you see all the politicians do with media, um, uh, it appears the Prime Minister is positioning this as a win, saying that relations are softening. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurie Institute. He is here now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. It's good to speak with you, and uh, happy Christmas to you and all your listeners. Back at you, Charles. Uh, obviously, we talked about this when the U.S. came out with its information a few weeks ago. Does this does this soften the relationship between Canada and India? Well, I think that if India gives us something that uh, could help us to sort of resolve the tension. I mean, essentially what's happened is that the U.S. has been much more forthcoming about the information that they have on the um, on the apparent Indian government backing for assassination of these um, uh, Sikh Khalistan independentist elements. And there was one, a, a U.S.-Canadian dual citizen named Gorpatwant Singh Panam, that the U.S. says that they have, um, you know, um, monitored Indian government communications and figured out that Indian officials in New Delhi offered $100,000 to a drug dealer named Nikhil Gupta to hire a hitman to kill Panam in New York. And they say that, you know, the same um, man, Mr. Gupta, the drug dealer who apparently can find a hitman if you need one, uh, was uh, debated to um, to also do the uh, the hit that we had of Hardeep Singh Nijar that Mr. Trudeau talked about, the one that happened in Burnaby, where you know two or three men we don't know came up and blasted through the windows of of his truck, sort of like something out of The Sopranos, and killed this this Sikh separatist who had been quite active in Canada. The difference is that Trudeau doesn't have any, doesn't give us any explanation as to why he's accusing the Indian uh, authorities of of ordering a hit inside Canada on Mr. Nijar. But the U.S., you know, as is their fashion, is much more prepared to talk about what they know and how they got it. And so, you know, we see we see the Indian government now saying that they will in, engage in an investigation to find out what happened, and one hopes that. You know, some some people will be made accountable for this if if it doesn't track right up to the to the head of the Indian government, Mr. Modi. Um, you know, maybe we can see someone lower down who will be made accountable for it, and whoever engaged in the in the assassinations will also be brought before a court of law and charged with first degree murder. Um, you know, the the issue really is. Uh, um, why is it that our government cannot do what the U.S. government does in terms of being forthright with the Canadian people about what's going on? And instead of making unfounded allegations against the head of the Indian government, not provide details that right. that make the case look much more reasonable in terms of why we're so concerned about, about uh, what India has been doing abroad. Was this all just to get ahead of a media story uh, and save some embarrassment, but perhaps without crossing the T's, dotting the I's? Because this was going to come out. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that what Mr. Trudeau should have done is said, yes, I'm aware that there's a media report coming out on this. Uh, yeah. Yes, we are, you know, are investigating this matter. And 
when we have uh, evidence, we will be presenting it to the Canadian people and ordering the RCMP to make the appropriate arrest. Thing is that, you know, amazingly, it looks like these the assassins have got away with it because we we haven't charged anybody and haven't named anybody in this plot, which really does call into question the effectiveness of our policing agencies if people can commit murder in in Canada and presumably hive off abroad, and we we can't even identify them by name. And of course, if we knew who they were, then we could trace who who was behind them. But certainly, you know, it looks because we have the evidence that that the U.S. has got um, bug telephone lines that suggest that that someone called Nikhil Gupta was considered to to um, be hired to do the Nijar hit. That suggests that it was a government action and not some sort of rogue agent or someone inside Canada that feels a deep resentment over the idea of Sikh separatism. But so does this... someone else did the actual work. So they sort of had a backup plan for assassination mm-hmm. in Canada that was different from the way they did it in the States. Does any of this change the relationship with Canada and India? Well, I mean, you know, I think that if we can, if we can see some accountability then uh, we can move on, particularly if we get assurance from the government of India that they're not going to be sending hit squads into Canada to kill Canadian mm-hmm. citizens, you know, that we prefer to deal with with unlawful activity through the courts, not by assassination squads sent by foreign governments. But I think if we do resolve that, we really need India to try and counter the malign threat of China. So, you know, how moralistic we can be about this and how much we we want to insist that that the the head of the Indian government confess that he you know he ordered the hit, which we do not know and probably never will. But if mm. we can at least see some accountability, I think it gives us a basis to to um, recreate relations and develop economic ties with India that will allow us to to dampen down the the economic uh, coercion and and um, over dependence on the Chinese economy that Canada's currently facing in our in our Indo-Pacific strategy. So, you know, it it's sort of ugly to think that we might have to make compromise with people who have been involved complicit in horrendous crimes of murder. But um, you know, otherwise do we just hold our relationship with India in abeyance uh, hmm. forever? Um that's probably not a, a a good option in terms of Canada's longer term interests. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and the icy relations between Canada and India. Charles, as always, thanks so much for all you uh, you uh, provide us over the course of the year. I mean, you're just a great guest to have on, and we greatly appreciate that, and have a great holiday. Thanks for saying that. Look forward to talking some more in 2024. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Joining us, leader of the NDP federally, Jugmeet Singh. He is here now. Jugmeet Singh, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks so much. We've got a, a new baby girl in the family. So it's added some uh, very lovely, <laughs> complicated life. We're happy and life is great. <laughs> that is great to hear. We were about, we were just talking about that. We were waiting for you. Congratulations! Always fun to have a new one in the house, and I, and I, I can imagine things are pretty hectic right now for you. But congratulations! Yes, we're we're officially two babies under two years old for a couple more weeks, and uh, our next <laughs> one's going to turn three then in January. But all is good. Loving it. 
All right, so uh, here we go, um, uh, heading into a new year. Many are still questioning uh, the agreement between you and the Prime Minister. When we have spoken in the past, for you, it's about dental care and pharmacare and getting all of that through uh, and such. But a new poll out from Leger says that uh, pharmacare is not necessarily... Uh, resonating with Canadians uh, as much as other health care issues, whether, you know, it's surgery, whether it's mental health, whether it's long-term care or such. Uh, are, are you are you concerned that this isn't uh, resonating with Canadians, that, that uh, although everyone wants everyone to certainly get the care that they deserve and have a right to, is this the right way to go about doing it? Well, I would say health care is a major concern for a lot of people. I hear that all the time. And in healthcare, everything is very interconnected. Uh, people are worried about emergency room wait times. Uh, I, I've experienced that myself when we had a scare with our daughter and we were in the emergency room for hours and hours, um, over five hours, and, and it took forever to get care. Uh, and it's scary. It's something that's frustrating and people want to know that they can get care. Getting a family doctor is, is next to impossible for a lot of people. So these are all big concerns. But uh, pharmacare is very much tied into a functioning healthcare system. We know when people can't afford their medication, they don't take it, they get worse and worse. And where do they end up? In the emergency room. We know that people that aren't able to treat their illness get into more and more acute conditions and might need uh, long-term care when they otherwise could have stayed in the community, could have stayed healthy at home, aged in place. So all these things are very much interconnected. And so we want to look for solutions on the healthcare crises that we're up against. One of them is the shortage of healthcare workers. We know that pharmacare is an absolute part of that solution. And it's something that every other country in the world that has universal healthcare has figured out that you should also include the cost of medication. Otherwise, the system doesn't work the way it should. That's why we're really the only country that doesn't include medication coverage in the entire world where there is universal healthcare. Um, is this the right way to go about doing it? Is this leading to a single payer system very similar to the healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. We want to have a, a single payer system for medication coverage like we want for healthcare. We've seen in BC really great examples of how the, the bringing, in fact, the opposite of what is happening in Ontario, where Doug Ford wants to privatize more healthcare that costs more and ends up costing people more money out of pocket. So it's it's uh, doubly bad. It's more expensive as a delivery model because the same surgery or same procedure, not only do you have to cover the cost of the procedure, you also have to factor in profit. So it's more costly for, the, for a government to deliver that service because you've got to also pay someone to make a profit. Instead, what BC is doing is they're actually buying back uh, private clinics and making them a part of the public system because they found that they can actually deliver care much more effectively, efficiently, and more cost-effectively instead of it being a private clinic, being a public, publicly-run facility. So they're going the opposite direction. That's the way we should. We should have a universal program where everyone gets the best quality care. It's more affordable for everyone. It's a better delivery model. And for medication, it's the same thing. Um, many may debate a lot of that. Uh, what, what would happen to the current system the way it is with employers and insurance companies? Is that, where does that go? Well, it would just take a, a major cost off the table. Uh, a lot of unions have been advocating for this for a long time. In fact, the Canadian Labor Congress, uh, which makes up the all the unions of the of the country, um, has long said we need pharmacare. This is something that's a cost that uh, every time there's a, a collective agreement negotiated between the employer and the employees, the medication coverage component becomes bigger and bigger, a larger and larger component. Taking that off the table would give us a competitive advantage. 
it would be more desirable to set up location in Canada, knowing that not only is healthcare covered, but now medication would be covered as well. So there's an advantage there. It would save a lot of money. Provinces spend a lot of money on medication. And uh, if you go to the hospital, if you're in care, that medication is covered. That cost continues to rise. If we could buy bulk purchasing with the power of 40 million Canadians, instead of each province negotiating separately, it would bring down the cost. It would keep the cost sustainable in that it wouldn't go up in unpredictable ways. And it would be a savings. Uh, the, uh, the parliamentary budget office has found that it would All be right. significant in the billions of dollars. I've got to cut you off, Jeb. We're almost out of time. I have to ask you a question from our listener, Barb. What would it take for you to cancel the agreement with the Trudeau Liberals? Is there anything that would cause you to reverse your position? Well, we're we're fighting to get help to people, and it's about how we're using our power. So for us, uh, we want to use our power to get people things like dental care. Dental care is out the door now for seniors. It's going to roll out until July. And that's going to cover 4.5 million Canadians. So that to me is very important, getting people the ability to take care of their teeth and to be able to go to the dentist. Um, the question about pulling out of the agreement would be letting the Liberals off the hook. They would love to break their agreement. They would love to cancel the dental care program. They voted against it. Pierre Polyev has openly said he would cut it. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think we need to cover seniors so they can get their teeth looked after. I want seniors to make use of this program, see how it saves uh, the money and improves their quality of life. And then I'd like to see Pierre probably have look a senior in the eye and tell him, I'm going to cut the program that you received. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to let them off the hook. I'm going to keep on fighting. Use the power that we have to give people the help that they need. Jagmeet Singh with us, leader of the federal NDP. Jagmeet, thanks so much for your time. Much appreciated over the course of the year. Have a great holiday. Thanks, you too. Take care. EVs, or specifically uh, gasoline vehicles, gasoline engine vehicles. The federal liberal, federal liberals have put a target on gas vehicles. Uh, 2035, uh, no more. Let's bring in the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, Flavio Volpe, and get his take on everything. Flavio, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me on. What are your thoughts, Flavio, on um, from uh, from the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association in regard to what uh, the liberal federal liberals have announced? Is this realistic? Is this the way to go? Well, I mean, it's uh, two things. It's not realistic. It is the direction to go, but not the way they did it. I think we all know, like I represent hundreds of companies that make the parts for the cars that we all see on the road, the original equipment parts. We make two million cars in Canada. You've, you've seen, and I know that you've talked a lot about all these new investments the federal and provincial government make has made into turning those cars, that production of those cars, into electric cars and some batteries, and we've totally supported that. Uh, but the environment minister came up with a scheme yesterday that has us going, uh, targeting 100% electric by 2035. You know, I've said in interviews all over the country in the last day, it's impossible, it's not going to happen. Um, but he's put penalties on 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 the companies that make the cars if they don't get there. So, so for example, and he didn't talk about it yesterday, and I thought it was disingenuous. There's a 20% target by 2026. If a car company doesn't make it, so if you sell 300,000 cars a year, 20% is 60,000. If you don't make it, you only sell 15%. You come 15,000 cars short. There's a $20,000 fine per car. So the the environment minister left out the detail here that what are we going to do? We're going to find General Motors and Toyota hundreds of millions of dollars because Canadians didn't buy their EVs. It's, 
it's crazy, but it's also crazy because the government is co-invested with those same companies to modernize the industry. It, it's like one part of the government's not speaking to the other, and I don't know who's going to win out on this one. Um, this seems to be the same discussion we have on, on, on many issues in the sense that everybody agrees that there's a problem and that something needs to be done about it. It's just, what is the right way to go about doing it? And here we have, you know, mandates being set for time limits when really, when you think about it and where the position of the government is right now, they may not even be in power or probably won't be in power when all of these come to fruition anyway. How much of this is about politics? How much of this is actually valuable? to manufacturing vehicles in Ontario or Canada? Well, none of it is valuable for uh, manufacturing vehicles in Ontario and Canada because the timelines are unachievable. I think it's all about politics, but I wonder whose politics they are. I wonder whether the environment minister is working uh, against his government or whether he's got tacit approval. I'll tell you what this scheme does. This is why it really, really ticks me off. Uh, companies that make 100% EVs right now, like Tesla, you know, very popular uh, line mm. of cars. American company that makes cars in Shanghai and then sells them uh, Model 3s to Canadians, that uh, those cars also get the $5,000 uh, federal uh, purchase incentive, which, which is amazing to me. You know, we're using tax dollars to finance purchases from China. Yeah. Those companies who already make 100%, uh, uh, electric vehicles. They, that company sold 50,000 cars in Canada last year. So under the new scheme in 2026, without having invested in Canada, they would get a credit for each one of those cars worth up to $20,000. That They would sell that credit to any of the companies that don't make it. We're handing a company like that who hasn't invested in Canada a billion dollars worth of credits based on their 2022 sales. Never mind what sales they make in 2026. And I say, but what are we getting in return here? We're forcing companies that make cars here to cough up hundreds of millions of dollars to their competitors to buy credits from them so uh, they don't get punished for making cars here. Well, they won't make them profitably. And so if, if you're in Tokyo and you run the Toyota or Honda and you're in Detroit and you run Ford or General Motors, and you're faced with uh, the prospect of hundreds of millions of dollars of fines, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to import EVs made from other places in the world to avoid fines in Canada, which is crazy. Uh, Or you're just going to reduce the amount of cars and your exposure to Canada. I don't know how that helps Canadian workers. And I represent companies that employ 100,000 of them. I don't know how it helps Canadian companies because the only Canadian auto companies are the suppliers. But I do know how we're helping companies that are using Chinese manufacturing to lower their costs to sell it to us and avoid us completely. Well, they can do that. It's a free market, but they shouldn't do that with Canadian tax benefits. Uh, does anybody for the government talk to anybody else in the industry regarding any of this best practices moving forward? Is this an annual thing? Shouldn't this be something that is, are you surprised when the environment minister makes announcements like he made this week? Cause you shouldn't surprised. be. Well, I'll tell you why I'm surprised because the finance minister, uh, the deputy prime minister, Christy Freeland has been a, a big champion of the industry and helped negotiate new terms in NAFTA. They got us here. Then we've got the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who's running around the world closing deals like the Volkswagen deal and the Stellantis deal to make these things here. I'm surprised that their cabinet colleague could open the side door to China and Vietnamese vehicles from VinFast uh, uh, so baldly. 
and um, and be able to to announce them publicly and 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 not not listen to industry on. Hey, by the way, we want the same things that you do, but we just kind of want Canada to have a fair shot at supplying Canadian customers. Where does this go from here, Flavio? Well, they just started hearing from me. Look, he heard from me a year ago when he proposed these things. And I said, look, hand out the fines today because uh, no one's going to make it. Mm. I didn't actually think he was going to go through with it. I really thought that there was enough people around that cabinet table that it wasn't going to go through. Well, now, of course, you know, we're talking about it publicly. We'll appeal through all uh, proper channels and uh, all options are on the table, including challenging the uh, the validity of a regulation that just sends uh, Canadian tax dollars and credits to foreign automakers at the expense of Canadian-based uh, production and workers. Flavio Volpe with us, president of the Automotive, uh, Automotive Parts Manufacturing Association. Flavio, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Could you hurry soon? Daddy says there's not much time. You see. All right, um, this is Scott Radley's uh, <laughs> worst, worst uh, candidate for the worst uh, oh. Christmas song ever met. What is that? Where did you find that? Oh, Why, I don't, I, I, Why I, did you put us through that? I, well, Tom asked me, he goes, what's the worst Christmas song? It's the one about the little kid buying shoes because his mom is dying and is going to die that day and wants new shoes. <laughs> Who writes that for Christmas? <laughs> That is that is the worst thing to play on Christmas. You know, except- people will be sitting there listening, going, "You know, Scott, there's people like they're out there right now I, listening that are having tough times like that, and you're I, making them feel worse." No, no, I I understand there are people, many people out there like that. I just, I do you really want to be singing about your mother? I mean, it's going to happen to some people, and that's terribly sad. But is that what you sing about on Christmas? I don't know. Did the- you hear the John Denver one? Daddy yeah. don't come home drunk for Christmas. Everyone's got everyone's got their family issues, I guess. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's right up I, there with Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Anybody else heard that one and oh, just yes, gets yes. trauma every time they hear it again after the holidays? Yeah. No, you know what, Scott? The only thing that maybe for anybody around this time of year could be worse than hearing those songs, I would think would be the government of Canada getting a loving thank you note from Hamas today for its support. Did you see this? No. So the spokesman for Hamas, who the day or two after the attack on October the 7th, the same guy who was saying, this is just the first, we're going to do this again and again and again and again. That same guy today, he put out a statement, an online statement, you can see it all over social media, thanking the government of Canada for its support towards isolating the fascist Israeli government globally and ending the longest ever occupation in our modern time. The government oh. of Canada got a thank you from Hamas today. Oh my. I'm not sure. I, well, first of all, I think he just gave every other party a campaign yeah. election ad because uh, yeah. could you, I mean, could you imagine what was going on in the liberal war room today? It's like, really? Th- <laughs> this is what, not what we need is a thank you from Hamas, regardless of our position. Has there been any response to it from government? Not heard that I've seen. Not that I've seen, but um, there's been a lot of response from a lot of people, let me tell you. There, it, it's just go on Twitter and type in Hamas in Canada, and there's just hundreds of people saying, really, this is now where we are? That we have an, an, an avowed, acknowledged terror group. The government itself says Hamas yeah. is a terror group thanking yeah. us for our help. How do, you, how do you balance that? He cannot do anything right. And uh, because he's doing everything wrong, it, it's just, it's bizarre how this has just gone from bad to worse. 
You know, Dave Woodard and I were just in the newsroom talking before I came on about, you know, polls and things and, you know, the liberal, they had a couple people, uh, Gerritsen and, and someone else out yesterday having a press conference where they were, well, even the media was saying like, why are we here? You're, you're the press conference is to yeah. say that you don't like Polyev's press conference, you know, <laughs> That's like. That's what it was, yeah. And it was, it, again, it was bizarre. It, it just seems as though the party that for what, five years, six years could not make a misstep, even when yeah, yeah, their leader yeah. made terrible missteps like blackface, it yeah. was, well, they found a way to navigate around that. And you're right yeah. now, it looks like everything that they touch is going the other direction. Yeah, they're getting beaten by their own game. It really is interesting. It's because what the conservatives have done have stopped shooting themselves in the foot. And many are concerned that they'll do that before the next election. Possible. But, you know, it's fascinating that uh, in trying to be everything to everyone has just finally caught up to him. And he just doesn't really appear to have a position on anything that's of any, that anyone believes in. And I mean, you know, we're talking about pharmacare uh, with Jagmeet Singh earlier on. And, you know, Leger Paul, this is like, this is not a priority for Canadians. Mm. The healthcare system and fixing that is more a priority priority for Canadians than the pharmacare system. And it's, you know, you say, well, everybody deserves, you know, uh, uh, drugs and stuff and, and their medicine. It's like, well, that's populist. Of course they do. Nobody's questioning that. It's how are you doing it? And is it any more beneficial than the way we're doing it now, uh, or, or even or even the provinces that say, give us the money, we'll make sure all of this gets done. But, you know, I listened to Jugmeet Singh today, and he went on for five minutes, and I under, didn't understand a damn word he said, Scott. I couldn't understand what he was even talking about. He was just often quoting stats and things and this, and it's like, it just, you just glaze over. Well, I mean, look, Jugmeet Singh, I, I do have some sympathy for him. Now, I think that, that he's put himself in this spot, certainly by his uh, support, his agreement with the Liberal Party. But I do have some sympathy with him because if you're him and where you are now, regardless of how you got here, what's your move? If you pull out of this agreement and you force an election, probably based on the polls, the conservatives win and you lose any power that you have as the deal maker, as the kingmaker, that's gone. You are now. But are you in this race to be a no, deal no. maker with the other party? Are you okay. to win the big game? You're I said that to him on the air. Do you want to be prime minister or not? Yeah, but if you don't want to be prime to be. minister, then get the heck out of the way. Except he's not going to be. The polls would suggest that he's nowhere close to that. So do <laughs> yeah. you, do you yeah. prop this government up? The, the irony of this is how many times in the last five or six months have the liberals done something and Jugmeet Singh or the NDP put out a statement saying, we abhor what this government is doing. It's like, yeah, but you're the only ones that could stop it, but they won't. You either, you either keep propping up a government that you say isn't good or you let them fall and you then take yourself out of any position of power. He is in a really tough spot. I, I don't blame him for not exactly knowing what move to make because neither of them seems like it's very good right now. If you want to be the leader, you got to go after the big prize. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show after 6 o'clock, and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great one, Scott. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. I'm very confused. The stage pricing, Canadian pricing. My partner went across the border a few weeks ago, looked at a t-shirt, saw a price for it, came back up to Canada, and it was the exact same price but in Canadian funds. 
What, what's going on with the world these days? What do you think, folks?